Well, thank you, Chris, very much. I feel like going to bed now. <laughs> Good evening. It's great to, to see you. See some old faces and some new faces, familiar and not so familiar. It's really good to be with you again. And um, thank you, uh, Janet and all the other, and, and, uh, and Jackie and all the other mysterious figures who have uh, brought us here together. And uh, for all the, the hard work and, and the care that you've put into making us feel very welcome here. So thank you very much, all of you. So, um, it's been uh, an interesting few weeks, hasn't it, in the world? You thought you'd come here and you'd be able to get escape from politics and tragedies. And in a way, we should leave it behind us, but we shouldn't run away from it either. Um, I was thinking uh, recently about the title of my talk. Sometimes I, I come up with great titles and then about a week before the talk I start thinking, what on earth did I call it the, that for? <laughs> and then I usually, uh, usually realise it. But um, if it's a new talk and this... this so I, I, was, uh, I was driving the, the other morning, early in the morning, and on the horizon... I was coming over the A40 in London, West London, and I saw smoke coming up. And then the traffic uh, got very um, congested, and I realised, of course, it was the. I turned on the radio, and I realised it was the uh, the building in in uh, Ladbroke Grove or North Kensington, quite very near actually to where I grew up uh, the first 15 years of my life. And uh, so on that horizon, uh, you could see this uh, sign of, of, of immense uh, shock and suffering and the, the tragic loss of life, which is still you know, being counted. And, um, and of course, that, uh, that tragedy is now turning very rightly into anger because it has revealed something that the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea, where I grew up, in the poorer part of it, has, uh, it has really uh, epitomised, which is the, the, the divided society that we live in. And that division is, uh, is, is obscene. So there's the simple, terrible tragedy of loss, then there's that anger that should well up in us uh, as, as the prophetic anger of, of any human being, really, against injustice. And, you know, as the people who, uh, the refugees and the asylum seekers and the people who are working and living there uh, realised this would not have happened in the other part of Kensington and Chelsea, nearer to the palace. There they would have had sprinklers. So, all of this on the horizon in one morning. And that's why I thought that this image of the horizon of Christ 
And it seems to me very, seems to be very poignant because when we look at the horizon, we see a limit. We see, we see as far as we can see. But if we really see it, then we see into it and beyond it as well. And I think that's, that's what I'd like to, uh, us to reflect on and to be able to share with you some, uh, maybe not very profound, but some, some thoughts about uh, that mystery of Christ, which includes both the compassion and the suffering and the anger at injustice and the hope and the healing uh, within the mystery. And I often uh, ask uh, someone just before I give a talk, after I've thought about it and written it, I ask them what they would say. And uh, so I asked somebody uh, who's quite new, quite young, quite new to meditation, um, what is Christ for you? And they gave a beautiful one-line answer. Really, I could just say this and then we can all go to bed. Uh, which was, Christ, well, here, I have it here if I can find it. I'll give you the exact words. Um, I said, tell me in a few words who Christ is for you. And they said, he is someone who accepts everything about me and heals me. Someone who accepts everything about me and heals me. And I think that everything is what the horizon is about. It contains the tragedies of life, the suffering, and also our passion. And he awakens in us our need to act, to change, to reform, to expose injustice, to come back when the newspapers have moved on to other stories, uh, when they've exhausted, you know, compassion fatigue. But it, he, he awakens in us this passion for truth, for goodness. And all of that happens for us as his sisters and brothers and friends and disciples, above all his friends, because we can feel like that young person did, that he accepts everything about us and heals us in that acceptance. So anyway, that's what I'd like to, to talk about when I talk about the horizon of Christ. It's seeing at, at the furthest uh, limit of our perception, and we can't see very far, as I'll suggest in a minute, uh, but as far as we can see, that is what we can see. This person who is full of compassion, full of a passion, and who is full of acceptance and healing for the nations. So this is a, this is a big, uh, big claim to make for anything. And Christ is a big claim, the yes. As St. Paul says that God has pronounced upon all the promise of creation, all the promise of life, all the potential of life.
Christ is the yes on all of that. The affirmation of the fundamental goodness and potential of, of the universe and of our own short lives. So Christ is a mystery. And to express this mystery, we need paradox and poetry. The language of science produces metaphors that we can use, but it doesn't define it. The best theologians can only use paradox and mystery and, uh, and poetry to express it. So we can't understand it, but we can evoke it. And this is really important, I think, for us in trying to communicate the mystery of Christ to our contemporaries. It's not that we are uh, dumping this Christian faith on people and demanding that they swallow it all, but we are here to evoke it. it with, with all the awareness of our own limitations and with all the awareness of our own failures, but we can evoke it. We, not just invoke it, which is what we do when we go to church, the invocation, the calling upon it, is only a pre preparation for the evoking, the evocation. And it's this evocation of Christ in faith that leads us deeper into his own mystery. We only know Christ by entering into the mystery. To go deeper into that mystery is to be more alive, uncomfortably and inconveniently more alive very often. Mm -hmm. To be animated, to be made broader, deeper, and more free of our prejudices and of our fears and of our self-induced uh, obstructions. This is why we can say that Christ is our life. One of these phrases we sort of toss out and we all learnt it as children or as a textbook in religion class, Christ our life, I think we had a textbook called that. But actually it's an amazing idea. When Christ, who is our life, it says in the letter to the Colossians, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, we have to sit with it for a few weeks. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory. And remember the word glory doesn't mean the, opening of the state opening of Parliament and the Queen wearing her triple crown or whatever, but the glory that the, as used in the scriptures means the fullness of life the overflowing abundance of life. Think of the period in your life when you felt most alive, most free, most loving, most uh, absolutely you know, at the top of, top of your performance. Now that's glory. And it, it's, not, you know, it's not only in youth when you have the glory of youth, but it can be the glory of an old person in the last stages of life, that glory can shine forth in us at any moment. The glory of God is the fully alive human being, said Saint Irenaeus in the second century. So it's we who are the glory of God. 
And the letters to the Colossians says, it is not only Christ who appears, it's we who appear with him. So you remember in the uh, resurrection appearances, Christ just seems to appear to the disciples as he was walking along the road with them to Emmaus, or he suddenly was just with them in the room. He didn't come with a big flash of light and smoke, you know, or didn't get beamed down uh, like from Star Trek. Uh, he was just there, but they saw him. He appeared to them. And then, of course, it took them time to recognize him. But when they recognized him, they were with him and they appeared to themselves in a new way. When they recognized him, that he had appeared to them, they, their fears, their hang-ups, their, their, their squabbles, their petty, uh, pettiness, all of that dissolved and they were filled, Pentecostal, Pentecost, with the energy of the infinite horizon of Christ's, of the mind of Christ. So Christ becomes present and perceptible to us by stages, of course, throughout our life, if we allow it to happen. But in that process of Christ becoming present and appearing to us, we appear with him. As he appears, we appear. We come to self-knowledge, our self-knowledge. We know this through meditation. Some of you have been meditating for many years. Some of you may have just been starting. Those of you who have just started may know more about it than the people who have been doing it for many years. Because some of us who have been doing it for many years, it's easy to become a little blasé about it or to slow down. But when you're beginning, you're, you're, you're sprinting. You know, you'll do it twice a day and you'll do it generously and you'll love to do it. That's why we, the, the, the rest of the, 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 uh, the class, you know, we have to come together like this periodically to whip ourselves back into, uh, into novices, being novices again, being, being caught up with that excitement and that sense of wonder and the mystery that caught us uh, right from the beginning. So this is part of the mystery of Christ, that we become more present, more perceptible, more conscious and alive, as he does, with, with him. We live with his life force, which we call his spirit. So this mystery of Christ is the most important aspect of Christian faith. If we don't have that, well, what have we got? And so the mystical life of the church is the life of the church. It's not an add-on. Some years ago, uh, Rome Williams, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, was invited by the Pope Benedict to give the opening uh, keynote address at the Synod on New Forms of Evangelization in Rome. And uh, I didn't read all of the... Um, all of the contributions, but uh, I, 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 my sense is that his was the his was the one that will will last longest and will go down in history. Will be the one that is remembered. And when I asked him just before he he left, uh, I said, "What are you going to speak about?" And he said, "Well, they think I'm going to speak about ecumenism." 
big yawn. Humans. You can say nice things about ecumenism won't be all the time. That won't hurt anybody talking about ecumenism. But he said, no, I'm being a bit facetious, I know. But he said, uh, he said, no, I'm actually going to speak about contemplation. Contemplation as the center of Christian identity. And unless we have been grasped by that centrality of contemplation, this experience, then uh, we cannot communicate, we cannot evangelize. Our evangelization, our communication, our witness to the real meaning of the gospel and the real person of Jesus depends upon our involvement in this mystical life of the church. It's not just my own personal little self-growth or self-development, my own little experience with a small e. It's part of the experience of the church. Every one of us, when we meditate together, is meditating as part of this Christ, great Christian unity. That's why we shouldn't, we shouldn't spend too much time arguing about Christian unity, because if we have to argue about it, it's not there. And it is there. This is the point. When we meditate together, we know that. And any meditation group, any conference like this, or any event where meditators come together, uh, we, we know that, um, that there is this unity, we experience it, we discover it. So this mystical life of the church is the life of the church, and without it, the church is anemic. It's really pious. It's just mouthing religious, you know, platitudes, really. I mean, it's trying, you know, you can often feel that it's trying, nobly, and suffering. I mean, I felt sorry for the Liberal Democrat leader the other day, you know, he was, he was trying, and you, you, everybody sensed his sincerity, and, but, you know, what was, what was the point? What was the, the issue? I mean, once again, Christianity was being seen by the world to be hovering all around this uh, one, one of the few sort of issues. Uh, this was, what was there? Was it homosexual? Is, is gay? Is gay? What was it? Is gay? No, well, it was, is gay sex sinful? Yeah, that was the thing. Well, you know, that brought down his career, poor guy. But, and he was sincere and, and genuine in, 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 uh, in expressing it. So, I'm not you know, not dismissing the fact that, that we have to struggle uh, with, with, with these issues. However, it's not what it's about. The church is not meant to be moralizing and self-righteous or collapsing in on itself, as it often does, sometimes in an anguished way. But if we do put the mystical life first, and where else should it be? as Rome Williams understood, then we want to clear away everything that blocks it, everything that gets in the way or prevents us from entering into the mystery, everything that prevents us from moving closer to the horizon. We simply want to get it out of the way. And then immediately after saying these amazing words, Christ who is our life shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory, he then says, put to death 
Therefore, put to death the components of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Well, of those two statements, Christ will appear and you will appear with him in glory and, and uh, put to death your sexual immorality, which is going to hit the headlines. And that's what happens. We, we, we focus in upon the secondary means. Of course, we should transcend our sexual immorality and our lust and our evil desires and the fact that so much of our economy is... Uh, is, is, is run by uh, the armaments industry and the fact that uh, that the uh, high-rise uh, apartment buildings of the lower classes don't have sprinklers. Of course, we should put all of that to death, that, in, that in inherited, institutionalized injustice. But we do that because of this mystery that is appearing continually, gradually, but continually in our lives. So a passage like that needs to be interpreted and contextualized. But unless it's contextualized in the mystical dimension, the mystical meaning of Christianity, it just creates, it just reinforces the popular idea of Christianity. And I was talking to an evangelical, uh, American evangelical the other day who's very wonderful, passion, passion, passionately evangelized uh, person. And uh, he said how tragic it was for him to realize he'd been brought up in this uh, Christian bubble, he said. And then when he grew up and he went out into the real world, he understood, shockingly, what people thought about him or what they thought about Christians. He said, and he suddenly realized that people associate with Christian and Christians, people who are judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, moralistic, and then he, he said, boring. <laughs> <laughs> Worst of all, boring. <laughs> you think, having been all those other things, you wouldn't be boring as well. But. So, if we forget why we clear away the, the, the blockages of delusion and addiction and injustice and idolatry, our consumerism, you know, I, I, in order, because of the diversion the other morning from um, Labrador Grove, we, we, we were diverted past, um, what was it called? Westfield, is it? <coughs> Westfield, yeah. You know, the Temple of Mammon there, shopping, huh? Westfield, Westfield, a shopping, shopping mall. And, you know, within, uh, you know, within sight of, of that burning inferno. So, if we, if we forget why we have to clear all this stuff away, then our, our way of, and Christ will not appear for us. We'll just be naysayers, we'll just be moralists, we'll just be people condemning others or not even having, you know, not even having the energy to, to condemn them. We just retreat into a sort of middle-class uh, bourgeois Christianity in which, um, you know, we, we just avoid those things. But if we remember the heart and soul of Christian faith, the mystery of Christ, 
and are sharing here and now in that glory, well, it all begins to make sense. We begin to see why we have to do some clearing out and some, some ascetical practice. John Main said that prayer is the essential ascesis of the Christian life. The danger of that is that you think you don't have to do anything else. But it isn't really. Because I think if you do place your prayer at the center of that process of, of spiritual exercise, of spiritual fitness, of, and of, um, of purification, the via purgativa, then what else you have to give up or avoid or, or, or get rid of in your life will become obvious. So this weekend I'd you know, like to explore with you something of that mystery which only paradox and poetry can really uh, evoke. And that's what scripture is made up of, mostly is scripture, poetry and paradox. And our meditation takes us directly into that heart of Christianity, takes us directly into the meaning of the scriptures. And that's why when we meditate, we reread the scriptures as if we had never read them before. It's what John Main himself did when he uh, started meditating again. He said that uh, he reread the New Testament and he read it in a new way, with new eyes, new perception. And that was exactly what John Cassian in the 5th century says in the 10th conference. He says, when we first started to pray in this way, we thought, oh, this is going to be easy. It's so simple. This is going to be really easy. And he said, we, we started and we liked it, but then we found it actually it was harder than what we were doing before. But then he said, the first thing we noticed was that the words of scripture came alive for us. We read them as if we had written them ourselves. So this experiential connection between the meaning of the words on the page and the experience in our own hearts. And he said we were able to see into the very bones and marrow to the inner meaning, the deeper levels of meaning of the scriptures. Traditionally, scripture is read at different levels. There's the literal level, the historical level, the moral level. There's also the spiritual level. So meditation very quickly opens up for us this direct access into the deeper level of, uh, of the scriptures and of our faith. Meditating, John Main said, is called the prayer of faith. In it, we leave self behind and we are open to the powerful personal presence of Christ in our hearts. The mantra is a sacrament, the outward sign of our faith in his presence. Well, you should never forget that when we teach meditation, whether we teach it uh, However we teach it, wherever we teach it, this is why we teach it. I teach uh, a course, and I don't do it all of it now, but I, I, I take part in a course on um, teaching meditation to MBA students at Georgetown University. And they're a very mixed group. 
some religious, most of them not, uh, some of them recovering, uh, you know, something that they had learnt in, in childhood, but most of them coming to meditation primarily to deal with a, a sense of stress or crisis in their lives. So we don't use a lot of religious language. We make clear that they see that it is part of the spiritual tradition of humanity, the wisdom tradition, but, uh, but we, don't, uh, we, we, we keep the religious uh, language uh, very, very simple, and we let them go into the experience, discover this experience, and then it's a new experience for them. They haven't had this before. They don't know how to name it. It's a mystery for them. It's real. It's present. They know that something is happening. One guy said to me after the first week, his wife said to him, you know, Jim, you have to keep meditating. <laughs> so that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big revelation of the mystery of God, or was it? <laughs> you know, it was something in him, an experience in him, that he had not been anticipating. He didn't have a, a, an answer for. He didn't know what it meant yet. But at least we were able to, or he, he was able uh, to take advantage of the opportunity to go into that experience. But that's why we do it. Because we know that when we leave self behind, we are open to the powerful personal presence of Christ in our hearts. So I'd also like to, to reflect uh, tomorrow a little bit more on the ascetical aspect of this mystical life of the Christian, of the contemplative Christian. And St. Paul was, or was, it letter, it was referred to in the letter to the Colossians in that rather strong language, putting to death the components of your earthly nature. But let's interpret that in a realistic way. Some, you know, any of you who have suffered an addiction, if you've ever been in a 12-step program, or if any of you have struggled with yourself in any way, then you will know, you will know what that means. We can't do without a cesis for a healthy spiritual life, for a life that is spiritually alive and, and growing. In the same way, we can't do without physical exercise for a healthy body. The word asasis means training, exercise. It's the kind of discipline that an athlete or a musician or a meditator willingly accepts and comes to love. They love an athlete or a musician or a poet who's writing or or a carpenter who is doing that, they love the exercise and the discipline of it. And they are continually learning from that discipline. What discipline, of course, means to learn. So it's the same with us. We may struggle at first with the discipline of meditation twice a day, and that's why we form community. That's why meditation creates community, and why community helps us to meditate but after a while we should be we should be getting into it and learning to love that discipline as a doctor uh, who's teaching meditation to 
medical profession in Ireland uh, said the other day, I was talking to a group of his colleagues, and he said, when I first started to meditate, he said the problem was doing it every day. Now, he said, the problem is not doing it. <laughs> so, let's just come to this image of the, the symbol of the horizon so we can understand the mystery of Christ in us a little better. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of a glory to come. It's a mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Let us think of Christ as a horizon. And there are many uh, meanings to that uh, word, horizon. It's the line at which the, the earth's surface and sky appear to meet. So in a sense, we, we see it, it's there, but it isn't there. The closer you approach it, the further it goes away. But it's real. And it can be measured, actually, up to a point. The sun rose above the horizon. On Bear Island every year on Easter Sunday, we will go to the standing stone in the middle of the island at six o'clock or whenever it is early on the Sunday morning and we, uh, we wait for the sun to arise over the horizon. <clears throat> now it's not actually the real horizon because there's a mountain between us and the real horizon. Uh, a little later in the year we'd see it probably rise over the sea so that's the, the true horizon. But uh, but the horizon and it's, is, is, is there, even if it's not the ultimate horizon that we can see, because there's something between us and the ultimate horizon, which is our daily problems, our mortgage, Brexit, uh, you know, personal, family issues. There's something you know, that blocks our vision or our perception of the ultimate horizon. But nevertheless, we can see the sun rising above those horizons and there's something glorious about it. Every day, a miracle, just as our meditation every day reminds us, refreshes us, to live in the mystery of Christ. We also use the horizon, in, uh, the word horizon in another sense, don't we? We talk about um, broadening our horizons. She went to university so that she could, you know, expand her, her horizons. So horizon can also mean a limit that we perceive as something that we need to stretch or go beyond. We need to expand. The true horizon is usually hidden by trees or houses or mountains or our daily problems. Um, but if we were standing on the land and there was nothing in front of us, we, we would see the horizon uh, about 
four kilometers away. If you're sitting on Mount Everest, it would be 336 kilometers. So it depends. It varies. Also depends how tall you are. And it depends how hot it is because the horizon appears differently because of the, you know, um, the temperature and refraction. And this is true when we meditate. We are in different moods, in different states, in different stages of our, uh, of our, of our mood and of our, 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 our inner journey, our inner weather, when we meditate from day to day. So we don't always see as far as we can. We're not always as clear as we can be. But even if we've just glimpsed it once, then we know that it's there. And that knowledge that it is there keeps us coming back. When we meditate, we step aside from whatever blocks our view, our addictions, our involvement in injustice. That's when we start to get angry. We should get angry. That's when we feel ourselves uh, uh, as, as, as the mystery of Christ begins to appear to us, this is also when we experience a natural outpouring of compassion. We can't stop it. We can't resist it. This is where we see further by clearing our minds and hearts from the words and thoughts and fantasies and images that block us, that hold our attention that prevent us from seeing as far as we humanly can at that moment. And this is the work of asceticism. This is why meditation is a purifying work. This is why we have to teach it as a discipline, as a, an asceticism, as an exercise, as something that we come to love, but that is, as the cloud of unknowing says, a work, an inner work. John Main says, meditation is a discipline of learning to stand back and focusing our attention, our whole being, on God. We have to begin with ourselves by being silent, by learning to be ourselves not defining ourselves by any activity or thinking process, just being ourselves. And the faithful repetition of the mantra, he says, is the way. And he says, he says it took him a, a good part of 30 years to understand that, to understand the importance of that of the asesis, of the work, of the mantra, the radical simplicity of it. The aim of all meditation is to purify our heart so that we can see, see God. Another uh, meaning of horizon uh, has come, uh, the word has been used as a metaphor uh, in physics, astrophysics or quantum physics, trying to describe the strangeness 
of black holes. The event horizon is that area around the black hole beyond which no light or any kind of radiation can escape. It's a very strange and creepy idea. And, you know, some great science fiction movies capture it. Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, we probably all here saw that. And if you see it again now, it sends you to sleep. It's so slow. But the, the new version of that is, um, what's it called? Interstellar. And there's a, there's a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, description or illustration or scene in which they go into this black hole. It's a point of no return. It's a boundary in space-time beyond which events cannot affect an outside observer. And no one can see a black hole. So black holes sound scary, a bit like death. But even in science fiction, they are also a passage through to another dimension of reality. They are challenging, but they are not to so much to be feared as to be treated with reverence. People are often f attracted to, fascinated by meditation at first. But after they've begun for a while, or even after a few years, they begin to put the brakes on. To give up altogether sometimes. Or to slow down their discipline, their daily practice. To keep it safer. To keep it more on the surface. And because they get a little scared about where it's going to take us. What if there is a point of no return? John Main said that one of the things all of us find as we tread our path of meditation with simplicity and humility is that certain things in our life will have to change. He gives the example, he said, for example, if you're watching three or four hours of television every day, you'll find that that's going to be a little conflictive with meditation. And you'll probably say, well, uh, maybe I'll cut down or I'll, I won't watch a horror film just before I meditate. <laughs> oh, somebody the other day was saying they decided they won't watch Game of Thrones uh, before they meditate. Jesus is the bridge that takes us to the further shore, the ferry across the river of egoism who launches us into the river of divine love. So going over that event horizon, going over what seems like the loss or the death of self is actually exactly what we want to do. It's exactly where, where we are meant to be going, into this river of divine love. We begin to understand 
experientially that God is the center and once we have redefined the center of course our whole perception changes nothing happens in meditation John Main used to say but your life changes remember he used to say uh, not exactly the best way to market meditation I think uh, <clears throat> when you meditate nothing happens and if it does ignore it <laughs> but it's the best advice you could be given if you really want to make the journey so we can set up blocks and resistances we create conflicts within ourselves and even between ourselves and our fellow meditators sometimes we allow the ego to dress up as a spiritual figure or as a good servant we have to be constantly on, the, on our guard and we need to constantly listen to, to each other that's why we need community to keep, our, to keep ourselves from those fears and those delusions faith perseverance discipline practice, asceticism this is what allows us to keep going into what looks like the black hole and then to discover it is in fact a blinding light a transforming light and that in that light we see light this is what I think it means that Christ appears and we appear with him in that glory of light and this is the Christian experience this is what we have to share with our hungry and confused contemporaries and if we are hungry and confused ourselves we can identify with them now this takes time it's both harder and more demanding than we think at first but it is also more gentle and sweeter than we thought at first and one of the great things that is given to us as we make uh, as we get into it, as we make the journey is friendship when we say meditation creates community meditation reveals friendship and we learn to see each other as friends in the investment business time horizon means the time over which an investment is made or uh, held until it's li liquidated it takes time we invest ourselves our time our faith our very selves in this work in this journey everything of course is mystery everything our universe is expanding faster than the speed of light wouldn't think so sitting here this evening would you <laughs> all around us we can only see a tiny part of this expanding universe and much of what we can see now we won't be able to see soon and of this bit that we can see 60 8% of it is dark energy and 27% I think is 
is dark matter. So what we can only see when we look up at the sky or we look around us, we only see 5% of what is there anyway. So we are living in mystery whether we know it or not. This is one important thing that brings science and mysticism together, is the mystery of the physical universe in which we are growing and making our passage. Now, we don't have to think about this all the time, or we'd never go to, go to sleep. Uh, we'd never go to the shops, and we would never come to national conferences. But we should remind ourselves occasionally of just how mysterious our world is. And I think if we don't have that sense of the mystery of our universe, we're not going to be passionate either about the vulnerable and the weak, people in our, in our world or about the physical environment uh, around us. We are in the mystery. Life, death and everything in between. Our own bodies and brains and of course our experience of love. So is Christ just one more little mystery? Well, all these mysteries dark energy, black holes, life, death, suffering, love. Is Christ just one more mystery we've got to sort of add? Well, that's how many people might see him, but I don't think it's how a Christian understands the mystery of Christ. Christ is not an extra mystery, as the Word made flesh, the Logos, he is the mystery of mystery. He is the mystery of all mysteries. That doesn't mean he solves the mysteries for us, that he has the answers. What would, what would Jesus do? So think, I'll look it up in the Bible and I'll get the answer to my questions and who should I vote for and should I vote for Brexit or vote for Remain and the Bible will tell me. Depends on which version you read, of course. <laughs> but, uh, so it isn't that, Jesus, that, that Christ is answering or solving the mystery. He's revealing the mystery. The mystery is not a problem to solve. That's the mistake of modern rationality, an excessive left hemisphere approach. that believes that there is an answer to everything. What we don't know today, we will crack tomorrow. But what we know is what we don't know. Let's, let's end uh, with this quotation from the letter to the Ephesians. With this in mind, I kneel in prayer to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, that out of the treasures of his glory he may grant you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being to know what is the height, the length, the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ and to know it though it is beyond knowledge.
And then you will be able, as he says in Romans, then you will be able to discern, to see what is right, what is true, what is good. To know it, though it is beyond knowledge. And this is what we are here this weekend, I think, to remind ourselves of and to understand, if we can, a little bit more clearly so that we can communicate this this forgotten truth, this forgotten human uh, wisdom. When Rowan Williams spoke about the new evangelization, he said, what Christians do is anthropological. We, we, we are able to say out of our humble experience, what is the real meaning, the real nature of the human? That's what we have to say. Not to beat people around the head over their sexual orientation or whether they go to communion or not and all these things. That's, that's not what it's about. It's that we are able to show a little from our own experience of what we have, how we have appeared to ourselves as Christ has appeared in us, what it is to be human. We need, and we can only do that by recovering this dimension of unknowing, the, which will be called the contemplative way of knowledge, the right hemisphere of the brain is often compared with, that is comfortable with uncertainty, not obsessed with control and manipulation. And it's this need for contemplation that John Mayne understood so clearly and powerfully and that's why he taught meditation. Because he knew that meditation, in his own experience, and in those of the community that he was forming, he, could, he knew and could see that it's this experience of the journey of meditation that allows us to see this horizon more clearly. And seeing the horizon, we see, of course, each other more clearly and more compassionately. I'd like to end uh, with a new friend, some of you, I think, somebody I haven't, I haven't re rediscovered recently. He's a sort of the Christian um, Rumi, Simeon, the new theologian, <coughs> who wrote these amazing hymns. I think it, it just captures something of this, this excitement and wonder, the wonder really, the wonder of the mystery and the seeing of the horizon of Christ. We are made, oh, he says, so now, um, what does he say? Uh, and so now you, Christ, are securing all awesome things in us. What awesome things? Listen to just a few of the many. For even if what we have said surpasses all astonishment, then all the same, listen now to things even more awesome. We are made members of Christ, and Christ becomes our members. And Christ becomes my hand and the foot of all wretched me. And wretched I become the hand of Christ and the foot of Christ. I move my hand, and my hand is Christ entire. 
For understand me, the divine divinity is indivisible. I put my foot in motion, and behold, it flashes as himself. Do not say that I blaspheme, but accept these things, and fall down and worship Christ who makes you like this. For if you also wish, you shall become his member, and thus every member of each one of us shall become a member of Christ, and Christ will become our members. He shall make all shameful things decent. By the beauty of his divinity and by his glory, he shall adorn them. And when we are united to God, we shall at the same time become gods, and not looking upon the indignity of the body at all, but completely made like Christ in the whole body, and each of our members shall be the whole Christ. For while we become many members, he remains one and indivisible, and each part is the whole Christ himself. There are no shameful members. They are hidden members of Christ, for they are covered. On account of this, they are more revered than the rest. As hidden members of him who is hidden, they are unseen by all, from whom seed is given in divine communion, awesomely deified in the divine form, from the whole divinity itself, for he is God entire. He who is united with us, O spine-chilling mystery. He who is united with us, O spine-chilling mystery, and thus it truly becomes a marriage, unutterable and divine. He unites with each one, and again I shall say these things for pleasure, and each is made one with the Master. And so if you will put the whole Christ on your entire flesh, then you shall understand that there is no cause for shame.